0: This week on Writers Inc.
1: I I never tell anybody (laughs) how to run. I don't mentor anybody. I don't teach classes. People will find their way to to the work themselves on their own. Uh, And I think that's the the way it should be. I'm, I'm certainly an original. And I've developed... Style, I've developed a set of techniques that work for me very well.
0: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc.
2: Hi, it's Christine Daigle.
3: Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflusch. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm JD Barker. Welcome to Writers Inc. I am back from Dubai. Um, still a little, little jet lag. So I figured it out. I was, I, I was up for 28 hours on the the leg back. Um, I almost, almost fell asleep on the plane. And there was like this little girl. She was like four years old. That kept running up and down the aisle. And like I had the the last seat on the that that particular side of the plane. So like I was her turnaround spot. And for whatever reason, part of her game was to like slap me in the arm whenever she, she did her <laughs> little turnaround. So like I was just about out and. and and then all of a sudden, I hear this giggle and a slap on the arm, and bam, wide, wide awake again. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Well, JP and I were oddly talking about that this week as our business idea. How much would you pay for an all adult airline? 18 up. Uh, double your ticket price? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
3: No children flights. <laughs> they they flew me out there a bit. They flew me out in business <laughs> yeah. class, which is which is awesome because you have like a your seat folds into a bed and stuff, um, and like my yeah. seat was right behind first class, so like the curtain was right in front of me, and and there was literally nobody in first class, like nobody paid for it was like a six thousand dollar upgrade to go from one Oof. to the other, and the only real difference was you had like a little sliding door like next to your your seat, you know, so yeah. like I don't know that a sliding door for thirteen hours or is, is worth six thousand dollars, and I'm, I'm guessing nobody else felt that we that way either, but. I don't know. I should have probably checked into doing an upgrade. I, I'm terrible at, at doing that, but I've, I've been told if you go to the counter, like at the last minute, they'll usually upgrade you for pretty, pretty reasonable. Especially prices. if they've
4: got those seats open, they'll probably catch you. Yeah. Deal. yeah. 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 So
3: next time, um, before we get going, I wanted to just say congrats to, to Hugh Howie. I saw Beacon 23 is out there and it's streaming. So that, that is awesome. So two shows within a year,
4: which is phenomenal. I mean, um, and it look it looks good. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it pop up on Amazon prime as a, the thing i okay. haven't watched it yet but and but when i saw it pop up i'm like well wasn't that a hugh howie thing and i, I but it looked like it was on one of those it was it looked like it was on one of those streaming services where it's like all the b movies and stuff show up that's what it i thought it was at first i'm like somebody stole hugh's title man but no i think it was i think okay. it was his thing
3: yeah and it looks really good yeah. Yeah. So that that's next on deck. We're finishing up House of Usher tonight, which is also awesome oh, if you haven't then, seen that yet. And then and then next on is I'm gonna spoil
4: it for you. Don't <laughs> you ready? don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one that got me to watch that. That that was uh, that that was it's incredible. Anybody who's not watch watched that yet. it it, it honestly
3: it it shows it shows the power of of you know an imagination where you've got one person who's totally in control of the entire show because like mike flanagan he wrote most of it he directed a lot of it um he was right there in in the seat you know basically running that entire thing from start to finish yeah Um, and like any one of the programs where he's done that have have been equally as good it's you know just when you get all those cooks in the kitchen things start to get a little mushy but he somehow he has managed to, to keep everybody out and it's phenomenal
4: yeah, he and the whole he wove in like I, I love how he pulled it all together with all these different pieces from like Edgar Allan Poe's work, you know. And it, it's more like an homage. Like there's no, there are some direct lines and things in there that are straight out of the Raven or whatever. But it's, you know, he took like these disparate stories, took characters from them, and wove them into this kind of crime family dynamic, and it was just. Just so well done, man. I, I'm a big fan of it.
3: Yeah. That that seems to be his thing. He he did a great job with um haunting a hill house too. Yeah. And it was the same kind of deal. Same it doesn't deal. follow
4: the Shirley Jackson
3: book at all. Um, but it's he kind of just grabbed little pieces here and there and just pulled together his own unique story based on it and phenomenal. So definitely get out there and watch that. You guys were at uh, 20 books, right? Yeah.
5: Yes, we were. So last week was the last 20 books to 50k conference in vegas the largest indie author conference in the world so craig martell who runs the conference and michael anderley who formed the 20 books to 50k facebook group are stepping down and joe solari and author nation are going to be rebranding and taking over so i think around the same time frame they're going to have it in uh, um, november 24 same hotel and all that good stuff yeah
4: Joe and I have had a lot of conversations about this. And this is like, he's, he's one of those guys, like he's mostly taking it on. Cause somebody told him he couldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> so I expect it to be big, but he announced some of what's happening. like on the, there's this reader event called rave. It's like, I forget what it's called. I, I forget what that stands for, but something reader author Vegas event, something like that. And, uh, something. but he, he's bringing in next year. The first great big talent he's bringing in is Kevin Smith to do a whole like night with Kevin Smith thing for the event. Yeah. So he's, he's aiming high. Like he's, he's bringing in top talent to, to drive traffic uh, with readers, making this a much bigger event for the authors attending. It's yep. going be, be good. Cool. Excellent. I mean, we,
3: I mean, it was always, always a good conference, and I think when you yep. you make a change like this on a, on a high note, like, everybody's already running at 11, and it's, it's probably just going to get better. Yeah,
6: absolutely. Yeah, totally.
3: JP, you had something coming up too, right?
6: Yeah, and because segues are fun, talking <laughs> yeah. about big writers and all of that <laughs> learning that uh, comes with that. Um, a little bit of self promo here, but, um, InfoStack is going to have their next writer craft, uh, bundle. Uh, this is like tons of books on craft and some services as well that usually are around like 40 to 45 bucks. Um, and I believe if all the stars align, my, uh, nonfiction will be in this bundle. So, uh. Next week, Thursday, which is November 23rd, is I think when it opens up. But regardless, uh, you can check out InfoStack.io and get notified when it launches. Um, And I'm sure we'll share links in the show notes and whatnot.
3: Cool. Congrats on that. All right.
6: What do we got going on in the news? All right. In the news. uh, Guess what's first? (laughs) OpenAI offers to pay for ChatGPT customer uh, lawsuits. So uh, OpenAI is offering to pay legal costs if ChatGPT Enterprise or API customers face copyright lawsuits over the API or over the AI's training data. Uh, this is a copyright shield and it aims to protect business users, not the free ones, um, amid lawsuits from authors. Uh, so OpenAI announced the policy and its first developer conference along with a ChatGPT GPT app store and new AI model.
4: Here's, here's how you know that there's no real threat here uh, on the copyright front is that people are putting up money saying when it happens to you, we'll cover it. So you know yeah, their attorneys are yeah, right? telling them, "Yeah, chances are very slim." I'm
3: wondering yeah. if that's the case. Like as soon as I I heard that, I'm, I'm thinking like this is somebody who has never run a business before, who is making a statement probably without consulting attorneys, because no attorney in their right mind would greenlight something like this. Um, <laughs> I, I think this is going to blow back because what is the actual upside to them? Like they they could go broke. Conf, it's doing a confidence
4: this. Like they, play. I think. It, yeah.
2: I have thoughts. Oh, okay. You have thoughts. That's
4: diggin- yeah, I know.
2: I had I had digging into I was digging, I was like, what does this mean? Why are they doing this? Um, so it's not unprecedented. So like Microsoft, Google, Amazon already offer this kind of protection yeah. in yeah. relation to generative AI. So I'm like, why would they be doing this? So this is for paid users as well as developers using chat GPT. It doesn't really absolve you. Right. <laughs> so there's like all these buts um, so if a copyright holder successfully shows that the output you're using from chat GPT infringes on their copyright, you can't use that output right, so you're still risking, and then there are limit limitations to the indemnity, so it doesn't apply if you knew or should have known the output was infringing or likely to infringe yeah the user doesn't use the chat safety. Features. So if you jailbreak your chat GPT, it doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. And if you do a trademark infringement, it doesn't apply. So I was like, why would they want to do this? It lets them take control of the claim. So they're protecting their business and their brand. So from that perspective, OpenAI benefits as much, if not more, than the user from this type of agreement. So this is not illegal advice, but be careful because you still could incur legal fees.
4: Yeah. But like, well, that, as you that said, actually,
2: Kevin, yeah,
3: that, that makes, that makes a little bit more sense because if you think about it, if they get hit with a thousand lawsuits, you know, as the defense team for that, like they, they could group a lot of those cases together yeah. on the defense side and probably save a bundle of money. Um, so I guess from that standpoint, it, it makes sense. Well, but yeah,
4: I, they really only have to I, win I, one, uh, you know, or maybe a couple, but they only have to win a very minimal number of cases. And then they set precedent and there's no, there's no recourse after that. So it, it lets them control that, that story altogether, that whole narrative. Uh, I think it's pretty, pretty smart play, and they are borrowing. Yeah. I had seen uh, where they were kind of borrowing from, like, Microsoft's playbook. You know, you can't really – Microsoft and Google have, have their trillions to work with, though. So they're, they're willing to take a few more risks than most small companies, but you know they had to have had some team of attorneys look at this and say, look, this is the smart play. I would hope. Yeah, well, you would think.
3: Are, are they partnered with ChatGPT, Microsoft and some, because I know they've got some really big companies behind them. I don't recall if Microsoft
4: is one of them. Not or, or that or not. I'm aware of, yeah. but I could be wrong on that. Yeah. I don't think so. I think, yeah. I know Google developed their own thing. I'm pretty sure Microsoft did too, but it doesn't mean that they're not cooperating. Like they, they may not be building on their platform, but they may have cooperated with that data set that they, that they gathered. Um, Seems unlikely, though, because they're if, you know, they're pretty willing to let uh, open AI take all the heat on things like, you know, scanning Smashwords library, you know, things like that. Uh, So I feel like they're probably most of those guys are kind of trying to put open AI in everyone's sites while they quietly go do the exact same thing. That's what it feels like from the Microsoft front. Yeah,
2: I think we can expect this not to go away anytime soon. So AI developers, users, IP rights holders are gonna continue to battle it out. Yeah.
6: Next on the list. Usborne, I believe, uh, launches U.S. trade partnership. Uh, Independent children's publisher Usborne is launching U.S. distribution with HarperCollins after 50 years of U.K.-only sales. So Usborne Usborne says it carefully curated a 253 title U.S. list from its best-selling series and standalones. Late founder Peter Usborne pioneered stealth learning uh, books that educate while entertaining. Uh, U.S. or I'm Usborne retains its collaborative in-house creative process for generating and adapting books for the US market. I like stealth
4: learning. I like that as a term. <laughs> yeah.
6: <laughs> I do too. I when I saw that I was like this is interesting and it makes sense cuz it's entertaining through education which is basically how things like uh duolingo or or all of those apps where you get sort of that dopamine hit works
2: yeah so i actually because probably i'm canadian we get uk stuff i don't know but my son had some of those books growing up they're very cute they have little characters it's like look inside a castle and then they teach you all the things about castles so that's great they're great books i'm glad they're coming over that's good
4: I don't want to be tricked into learning nothing, it? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what this show is—we're we're tricking people into learning stuff by interviewing. That's right. I,
3: I've noticed that actually reading books to my daughter—like almost everyone now has—you know, like this little hidden message in there, and like you get to the end and it's teaching some kind of lesson. And they—they've gotten really good at sneaking them in there. I—I I never heard that term before though, but I'm gonna have to grab onto that and use it again. I
4: like. I'm gonna incorporate stealth yeah. marketing. So like when you get to the the end of one of these books, it's gonna be like, and then they went to McDonald's a <laughs> <laughs> little okay. registered trademark thing right there <laughs> they all enjoyed a bucket uh, of kfc
6: <laughs> i see you're really going for those big sponsors i haven't together, had lunch yes. yet um, <laughs> okay, noted so you're just hungry they
4: sank their teeth uh, into a water burger <laughs>
6: Last on the news, uh, U.S. National Book Awards, uh, David Steinberger's Narrative. Uh, So this was an article that Christine sent over, uh, and Steinberger highlights the shift towards using data and AI in publishing. Uh, Authors should leverage these tools for book discovery and building direct relationships with readers. Uh, The late 90s saw significant publishing industry consolidation for economies of scale. Uh, Authors need to understand these markets dynamics, and uh, strategic publishing decisions. Perseus' book model prioritized books with long-term potential over immediate bestsellers, and we should consider it the lasting appeal uh, of their work. Yeah. And then the industry is increasingly supportive of independent publishers in niche markets. And uh, we should see uh, how specialized content and target audiences in the digital era uh, function.
2: Yeah. I sent this one over just because it was positive. Mr. Steinberger says that the book uh, business is stable. So I was like, yeah, yeah. Which is something you don't hear that. <laughs> like from that. Just we anyone. like something
4: positive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel we may need a second opinion on that. I think it's, it's here's what I'm seeing in the publishing fishing industry as a, as a whole is like, there's, there's kind of a little bit of a, um, I'm not going to say it's a division per se, but like, you know, there's 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 multiple paths starting to open up again uh, where it sort of used to be like trad pub versus, you know, indie publishing. Now there's with AI, there's like a whole other like subset of indie publishing that I think is is going to become a thing. And it's not necessarily I know there's a lot of people are freaking out about AI taking writers jobs or whatever, but I actually think it's creating like an, an actual individualized market that um that can that has to be served by something like AI like you when you talk to like Michael Anderley and his bunch at LMBPN and the whole 20 books to 50k model that they established like that was a rapid release model. his company at one point they may be doing even more now, but they were doing like a book a day uh, release, and uh, that's how they they sort of took over those markets there's a definite readership for that kind of thing, and they don't care. As much about quality as they do, uh, they just want to feed that that need for story, and that's what AI is going to start scratching uh, as an itch um, over the next year or so. But it opens up this artisan lane for those of us who who just love the writing and just want to write good books. I think we're going to start being able to bill ourselves as you know, this is a one hundred percent human written book an actual human yeah. with a, possibly a robotic heart.
6: It should be worded just like <laughs> That's that.
4: what I'm going to, that's what I'm putting just on sad. my book descriptions for sure.
2: Yeah. And I think that's true. There's always, you know, someone who's going to put a poster up on their wall and someone who's going to put a Picasso. Yeah. And there's always different markets for different people and different tastes. But I love that Perseus highlighted the idea of long-term potential yeah. over immediate success. Cause Tradpob mm-hmm. has always been, you know, pre-orders in two weeks and you're done. That's um, what I think has gotten, so us I in like trouble. that we're kind of yeah, yeah, so do I, I agree, I wholeheartedly agree, and he really talks about the importance of diverse business models adapting to changes in the industry, which we've been continuously talking about. You have to adapt to survive, so yeah, it was a really interesting article. go read it,
4: <laughs> <laughs> read no way, have an a i read it to me. <laughs>
2: And with that, J.D., who's up this week?
3: This week, we've got James Elroy. He's the New York Times bestseller of some of my personal favorites like L.A. Confidential and Black Dahlia. His latest book is called The Enchanters. It's based on the, in 1962 and the events surrounding the death of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, so here he is, James Elroy.
2: Mr. Elroy, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Great. Thank you. And I'd like to start off about uh, talking a little bit about your career, if that's all right with you. Certainly. How did you get started writing?
1: I wanted it. I wanted it to the exclusion of everything else. I was 30, not quite 31 years old back in 1979. My life was going nowhere. And I had a book I wanted to write. The story had been kicking around in my head for years, several years. And I wrote it and I got a reference book. Which was titled Writer's Market 1980, subtitled Where to Sell What You Write. And I sent four copies, Xerox copies, of the manuscript of the book, Brown's Requiem, my first novel, to agents who said they'd read unsolicited manuscripts, and they all wanted to represent it. And I went with a man who sounded the most aggressive and perceptive.
2: Yeah. And who who was that? Can I ask? Is that the agent you're still with, or was that somebody else?
1: No. Yeah, that was Richard Hutner. Okay. It was a small one-man agency.
2: Nice. And you were working as a golf caddy at that time? Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was a caddy at Bellar Country Club in L.A. Okay.
2: And how did you fit in? You were doing that for quite a while through your first five books, I believe? Uh, With Richard Cotner. With the caddying. Were you caddying for quite a while, were you not, while you were writing? Yeah,
1: I was caddying through my first six books, Brown's Requiem, Clandestine, Blood on the Moon, Because the Night, and Suicide Hill.
2: And how were you fitting in writing at the same time?
1: I would get up in the morning. I had cheap apartments that I lived in. I was single, and I would either take a bus to the golf course where I worked or walk, and I was quite often done by 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and then i come home and work.
2: Nice. And so you've been doing this for a long time, and you've changed agents, correct?
1: Well, I went to Nat Sobel after a while when Richard Hutmere took a job in publishing. Okay. And then I canned Nat after 30-some years, and now I'm with Andrew Wiley.
2: And you had written a couple of books, and then... You met Otto Penzler of Mysterious Bookshops. Is that right? Right. What happened with that? We became
1: good friends. We still are good friends. And he was the fellow who introduced me to Nat
2: Sobel. Okay. And then it just took off from there. Right. Right. And so now you have a new book, The Enchanters, where you've brought Freddie O'Tash into 1960s L.A.
1: It's, it's it's not a satirical for the Otash book and a comedic pretty Otash book like widespread panic is it's a big tragic Otash book
2: Yeah. and you've said before that you think for quite a while, many months before you outline your books, is that correct?
1: well it takes a long time to outline the books, yes they're very long and very detailed yeah
2: do you think about it for a while before you put any words down? Or are you writing yep, all the I time? I sure do. Okay.
1: I sure do. Before I, I, I mess around with the idea in my mind, I it's like just driving a car. And uh, I've been doing that on this new book, which will be the sequel to The Enchanters. And there you go. The outline for The Enchanters was 425 pages.
2: Wow. So, do you do any writing during your thinking months, or is that just time to think?
1: No, it's not something Then okay. it's time to write the outline to to take the notes. And of course, I write it entirely by
2: hand. Yeah. And what does that outlining process look like for you? Can you tell us about a bit about that? What goes into your outlines?
1: All my ideas all my plot points, everything on the characters, everything on the various crimes that I depict, the menu, the history of the time and place, and then I put it together.
2: So does it originally have any kind of shape, or it's just all your ideas in whatever kind of order you get them?
1: No, it always has a shape. I'm an orderly
2: thinker. So kind of like a first draft and then you're filling in? No. No.
1: (laughs) No. It it just says, go here, go here, go here, go here. And it's in violence. I follow the diagram that I have created.
2: Nice. 425 pages. That is a substantial outline. It is. Yeah. And you handwrite, what do you think would be lost, like using a less, tactile more mechanical style of writing like typewriter or computer do you think that changes the language the flow well i'm
1: not distracted i'm not looking at a computer screen and singing advertisements i'm it's easy for me to sustain concentration i'm good at sustaining concentration so i was cut out to be a novelist writing huge very complex books because I'm capable of thinking about one thing and one thing only for quite a long period of time.
2: That's a good skill to have, so deep thought. So were you just built like that, or do you have any trips, tricks that you use for deep focus?
1: Yeah, this, this is the way I started out. I, I was working as a golf caddy. I didn't have much money. I lived in a cheap hotel room. I rode standing up. I spread my papers out on top of a dresser, and that's how I worked.
2: Yeah. And I've never stopped. Do you still write standing up?
1: No, I don't stand up. I have a desk. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have a cell phone. I have a landline phone. I'm talking to you on a landline
2: phone. Nice. So, not only is uh, your outline for The Enchanter substantial, the book itself is pretty substantial in terms of page count, but it flies by. Natasha's voice just hits you like a freight train. Can you tell us a little bit about like how you developed your style, the intentionality behind it, for example, using all the slashes like in this book, the Maryland uh, Quadrifecta, which was pop pills slash booze slash barf slash pass out, bare bones words, no adverbs, no, you know, none of that. No, no, this is not a reduced It's a very terse style, and it's a
1: very masculine style, and I, I despise sloth in my general life and in my work life, and I want books that start out fast and go, and so I bend all my efforts, all my concentration
2: in that direction. Yeah, and they really do go. I mean, some of your books are 700 pages plus, and they go. Uh, what tips would you have for making that fast, hard-hitting kind of voice? Well, I, I never
1: tell anybody <laughs> how to run. I don't mentor anybody. I don't teach classes. It, people will find their way to, to the work themselves like, on their own. Uh, and I think that's as the, the way it should be. You know, I'm I'm certainly an original, and I've developed a style. I've developed a set of techniques that work for me very well.
2: And uh, before you started writing, did you study other authors? I know you read a lot, but did you study their techniques? No. No? You just came up with no, your I own just thing. Read, I just read for pleasure. Nice. So this book is written in first person inside Freddie's head. He's a good thinker, but also a a flawed thinker. How did you get his voice right?
1: Well, I show him to be uh, an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a man who craves mental stimulation. He lends himself to my my archetype of the obsessive male hero very, very well. Mm -hmm. I'm that way. I get obsessed and I think about individual things to the exclusion of everything else. And so in that case, he's certainly an offset of me, uh, He's certainly younger. I was only 14 years old in 1962 when the book is set, when he was 40. Then he's long dead now. And it's a natural way for me to write that expresses my concerns. And it's a great voice. To utilize when you write novels of obsessive
2: masculine intrigue yeah, and uh for for Freddie, or just for characters characters in general, how do you think about internal conflict? What makes good internal conflict in a character
1: High stakes mm-hmm. again propensity for violence in the characters, the overweening curiosity of my detective narrators, they're men who want to know why.
2: Yeah. So you said high stakes. I'm curious, what does high stakes mean to you?
1: High stakes means a good murder case. Mm
2: -hmm. Nice. So in this book, um, Jimmy Hoffa offers Otash a job gathering information about Marilyn Monroe, including her relationship with the Kennedys. Right. How do you manage to look at cultural and political happenings while keeping it gritty and keeping it breakneck?
1: I just utilize my imagination and I make it up.
2: I love that. So how do you decide, or what techniques do you use to mix fact and fiction, or how do you rewrite history to your own specifications?
1: I know how to do it. I've been doing it for a long time. I follow my instincts. And I I have people who do negative research for me. The real life story of Beryl Monroe and her death and its aftermath is muddled. We don't know what's real and what's not. there the story is rife with different versions. That's fine with me. So I, don't, he- I care not one whit for accuracy
2: right So is it kind of looking for that wiggle room maybe where there's something that's muddy, as you said, or not uh, well-established that you can play with?
1: Right. I'm looking for the latitude to fictionalize.
2: I'm curious, do you have any tips for us on writing killer endings?
1: No, they should be emotionally resonant. They should be They should be true to character, true to the main view. Uh, I appreciate a bittersweet ending. And Ernest Hemingway had a phrase for it, which is winner take nothing. So Freddie Otash has transformed himself. In the in the course of his adventures in the summer of 1962. Mm-hmm. He's changed, but what does he have? Not much.
2: Yeah, yeah. And he was a real person, right, for those who don't know, a real police officer, or PI, Marine, Hollywood fixer.
1: Right. That's Freddie of Tash.
2: Yeah. And did you know him personally?
1: Yes, I did. I knew him for three years. Okay.
2: And uh, does that help when you're writing characters, um, to base it on someone that is historical or someone you know personally, or do you just kind of like making it up?
1: I like mixing fictional characters with established historical characters. And I like writing from the point of view of the stooge.
2: <laughs> and do you think about your readers at all? Like when you're writing, do you gear to them? Do you try to be original or do you just do what you feel is right in your gut?
1: I'm aware that I have an obligation to entertain people. Mm-hmm. And I want to uproot them from their daily lives and force them to read my books in as few sittings as possible, which will help them approximate the level of obsession that I write at and live at, and it also aids them in their comprehension and retention of difficult, complex texts.
2: I like that. I like that a lot. So I'm curious, what do you love about writing 1940s, 50s, and 60s L.A.? Well, I
1: was born in 1948. I grew up in L.A. I am recreating the 40s that I know about from people talking, discussing obsessively the war, everything was either after the war, during the war, or before the war, with people for the longest time, when I was a little boy, I believe the war was still going on, because of its prevalence in the American imagination. and. I was an early scanner and stare at pictures in Life magazine. So the past, the recent urban past, has always lived in me. And now I write about the era of my cognizance. Yeah. Being 14 years old.
2: Yeah, it's such a formative time, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Awesome. So I want to talk a little bit uh, more about what else you're doing now. So tell me about uh, American Tabloid and its podcast.
1: A man came to me named Jimmy Jelinek. He runs a company called Audio Up. He wanted to do a podcast, of my book, American Tabloid, my most honored novel, My story told from three of the conspirators who whacked John F. Kennedy. I said, only if I can read all of the narration. And he said, yes, well-known actors will read the dialogue. That's what debuts this coming Thursday. Lovely. Not one word is cut. Unexpurgated, unbulterized. No, nothing got uncensored and it's a 576 page novel
2: and it's 21 hours of spoken word that's wonderful and did you enjoy doing it in podcast format versus audiobook like what do you think the difference is you got to narrate it with your voice which is phenomenal
1: Well, I'm happy to do it for something on this scale. I narrated a book I wrote called The Hilliker Curse, but it was an abridged version. And it's tough work. But in the case of American Tablet, the podcast, you've got the actors. They differentiate the voices. You've got sound effects. You've got period music you got a story you can follow, and it's a huge story.
2: Yeah. And do you think that, you know, besides the book, maybe that's the way to keep the story most true to your voice?
1: Other than the book, yes. I yeah. mean, you, uh, movies, you have no control. television, you have no control. Yeah. Yeah, the reader here,
2: Uh, what was challenging about that for you about doing that podcast how are you recording that what did that look like
1: I went into a studio with Jimmy Challenger here in Denver we recorded if I flubbed the word we had to start over at the beginning of the sentence it was two it was two weeks of work
2: two weeks of work for 21 hours that's not too bad that's... <laughs> no no
1: just, just for my narration and The
2: actors were recorded individually. Okay. That's amazing. And uh, where is that coming out? Where can listeners find that?
1: It's on the Audible Network. Okay. And the company itself, the individual company, who commissioned me is Audio Up.
2: And uh, do they just work with writers in general? Like, can people approach them, or how does that work?
1: They come up with ideas and commission podcasts. This is the first novel they've done.
2: Wonderful. Well, I'm really, really looking forward to that.
1: You can tune in on Thursday,
2: but uh, we will, and this podcast will be out uh, Monday, so it will be out, and listeners can find it.
1: I like that very much.
2: Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Yeah. And so as we're kind of uh, coming to a close on time here, most of our listeners are writers. They love career advice. If you could offer advice to new authors, aspiring authors, what career writing advice would you give?
1: Write for books. Become a professional. If it's published on the Internet, it isn't really a book. Self-publishing, amateur publish, no, no, don't, don't do it.
2: Hold out. Okay. So that was an interesting interview. Mr. Elroy does not have a computer or a cell phone. So that interview was literally a phone to phone with me holding it up to the microphone. So that was delightful. I was kind of sad because I had all his books behind me. I had like a first edition of LA Confidential. I can't claim that—that's my husband's. But uh, I was like, "Oh, you can't even see all your cool books I have up here." But no computer, no cell phone, just a pen and paper. You, you did an excellent job. you try job. the James Elroy? You cut you cut out all month? the
4: references to him telling kids to get off his lawn. You you cook all that stuff oh. out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what do you think? Did you do it? A month?
4: I'm too digital.
6: I'm
3: too digital. No, my my handwriting's terrible. I got great handwriting. <laughs> I, I,
4: I I am always tempted to write a book by hand, but I, but then it's just sort of I don't know. It gets I get intimidated by it. So I I'll start one on paper, and then I end up writing it all. On Scrivener.
3: Yeah, I've got one. I started out on a typewriter. I've got an old Royal typewriter my mom gave me. Um, I do like a couple sentences every day when I walk by it, but that that's about as close to the old school days that it, I kind of I, I, I can't imagine sitting down with a pen and paper. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I like the Kirk, the little yeah. sound it makes, so the kerchunk. Yeah, can,
4: now <laughs> it's kind of what fun. I
3: want is. Just, a-
6: Program your computer to make You it could messy. do that. I mean, the, the whole
4: word <laughs> processor model was that you were writing and it was typing it on paper at the same time, but also storing it on media. So maybe we can go back to the word processor era and we'll all get our nostalgia fixed. You know, I've Indeed. tried
2: writing a book by hand. Oh, I'm sorry, JP. But I tried writing a book by hand. Uh, I was trying a fantasy book that I was just having fun with just kind of for myself. And I found that it really... Slows my writing down. So I put in like more description, more world building. So just that Mr. Elroy writes that at his breakneck pace, it was just amazing to me the pacing that he gets with pen and paper. So i've been thinking about that this yeah. week, yeah.
3: well, I, th- I think if you try any th- any method other than your, your computer you 're going to find that your voice is different, your pacing is different, is. Like everything about that story is different i mean that 's why I 'm using the typewriter because it 's creating a very different type of book than I would normally you know write on on my own um, so it makes me wonder what would happen if James Elroy were to you know if somebody slipped a Mac in front of him and said you' hey, write the next one on here you know what what would we get out of the guy because he's be created some pretty fantastic books with that pen and paper. I just
4: started reading um Haruki, I'm gonna butcher it. Haruki Murakami's uh novelist as Good a vocation. Job. Did I get it right? Uh the book is called Close. Novelist as a Vocation, but I did not realize this. But he writes everything in English first and then translates it back to Japanese, which later gets translated to English again. That's pretty impressive. Hmm. But he 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 outlines yeah. why he does that. Like that's how he did his first book. It was the only way he could get it and it helped him keep the language like simple like he had to because japanese apparently like you can get very flowery with the way you describe things and this was a way for him to kind of tame uh the writing Uh, i just was fascinated by that but i i don't the only thing i could do is write a book in pig latin so i'm not sure that would be helpful for anybody
2: (laughs) yeah i'm such a fan one of his early books was the reason i wanted to write because he is such a fabulous writer just this yeah, economy of language, this weird disconnect, and existential crises. And he's beautiful. If anyone hasn't read them, uh, hasn't read him, they should. So.
4: <laughs> Didn't mean to sidetrack his. How, how many oh, of you remember? Okay. How many of
3: you remember those writers' market oh, yeah. books? Are, are they, I, they still, I, still around? Yeah, I, I, yeah, think, I they think they are.
2: No, like, yeah, I I thought they might have stopped a few years. Well, ago. Well, okay,
4: let me know. rephrase that because they maybe they don't do the print version anymore. I mean, it's still available online, uh, but they have uh, those always had great articles and stuff in them. So I I used to have a whole collection of them.
3: I did too. I, I had probably like ten or fifteen of them like yeah. just every year. You know, I just had to, to get the new one. Had yeah. to get the new one, and they didn't change that much, but it just looked cooler yeah. on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Okay, so here's my other question. Um, Mr. Elroy has chunks of time that he spends just thinking and doesn't do any writing at all. Do you ever do that? Just have months of thinking before you write mm. your next book without writing anything? Bathroom other time.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not everyone? Kevin, you <laughs> have
2: months of bathroom time. You don't time spend I don't months know about. of I got, bathroom
4: It's time. a process. <laughs> you got to do this. You got to take your he, time with this. He, <laughs> Don't need to hear it. No. Nope. He
3: rattled he rattled off McDonald's and KFC at the start of this. You know he spent time
5: in the bathroom. <laughs> Taco Bell's next. That's right. Um, I
3: eat a lot of
4: cheese. I mean, the, the
3: closest <laughs> I get, like, I, I work a lot on the books while I'm out on a run every day, you know, thinking about what sure. I'm going to do next. But I, I've never completely put the whole process aside for you know, a couple of months just thinking it through and organizing and, and things like that. I, I do know people that do that. They, I mean, Lee Child yeah. is a great example of that. You know, he, he starts each Reacher book, or he did, on the, the begin, uh, beginning of September. I think September 1st September 1st he um, yeah, still does yeah yeah so he but he spends time thinking about it coming up with that plot and just kind of working it in his head um, Stephen King does that to a certain extent he doesn't write a lot of stuff down he feels that you know if these ideas pop in his head and they're worthy of actually getting to the book he'll remember them um, so he doesn't actually make notes uh, which is a, a really cool way of looking at it um, but yeah I mean then, then I guess Elroy uh, must sit down at some point yeah. then and just hammer out the outline on on paper yeah. Um, and then start the I, process. I think
4: I think on paper and by hand like because I do a ton of journaling every every day like I've got three or four it's usually like a study kind of thing but uh, I explore themes I've noticed uh, through all that and then what ends up happening is that theme ends up ultimately working into the the book so it's not I'm not like sitting around thinking about the characters or the plot or anything like that but I am kind of working through Various themes that I think would be great for the story, maybe not even intentionally i'm I'm not intentionally thinking those themes would work great in the story I 'm just working through them and then they end up in the story.
2: I also thought it was interesting he's not the first author i've heard say this that does kind of historical events, but he looks for some wiggle room, so something that's historical but not well documented and then he kind of splits that open, yeah. tailors it to his own specifications. Have you ever done anything like that?
3: I, I did it with Dracul. You know, like we had a lot of uh, things that we found from from Bram's notes and a lot of it, you know, like if you – w- one little sentence here or there, but then you jump on Google and it opens up this giant can of worms. Um, I would have loved to hear more from Elroy on his research process because if he doesn't have a computer, like how is he – is he going to the library? Is he actually visiting these places? Yeah. And, um, I mean, he's an older guy, so like I can't imagine him doing a lot of travel. He but just lived through it, it all. So, but, you know, he's definitely –
2: yeah. He said he was that like too. 14, he's recounting, yeah. the era he's writing about. Yeah. And you know, yeah. you're so impressionable at 14. Like you remember, I remember everything so much better than I do now. <laughs> <laughs> but, and yeah, he's using characters that, you know, were well-known celebrities or that he knows, like Freddie Otash, yeah. he knew him for three years. Do you do that? Like take people, you know, maybe with or without their name and just write them as characters? Absolutely.
3: I think I've taken piece, pieces of people, right? But I, I don't, right. I've never really thrown a full full individual in there. I might with another book, though. I had an idea for a, a friend of mine. who's a, She's a plastic surgeon. Um, and I had an idea for a, a book, and I might actually use a real name in there. I don't know if the lawyers will let me do it, but I'll, you know, as I write I, it, I'll probably do
4: I, it. The stuff I'm writing right now involves you guys. All of you are, are characters. Yeah, <laughs> I figured. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. I'm very excited. <laughs> Great. Everyone keeps their clothes on. Just- so, because I could already see that, I that I wasn't even a question JP. I was about to
6: have. So, <laughs> JP's thank you. like, "Am I naked?" <laughs> <laughs> not, I was not even thinking like, <laughs> I really wasn't. Now I am. Now I'm. That is something even more. You should be where concerned about going. JP.
4: You should worry about that. <laughs> clearly, I mean,
3: gonna <laughs> s- clearly, Ke- Kevin, you're going to scare him away. I mean, yeah, we just like got him back. <laughs> he comes back to this. He's come-
6: going. <laughs> I don't know what I've returned to. I'm this is the should I be nervous?
4: That's right. I, I'm coming, I'm fresh off the Vegas, man. Everything Zinc. is like my whole brain got rewired in Vegas. And now I'm, not, I'm down.
2: Okay, let's talk about Vegas. Vegas. <laughs> no,
4: it all <laughs> high stays stakes. In Vegas. That's the rules,
2: right? No, I want to talk about Vegas. What high stakes is something that we were talking about. What does that mean to you? He said, a good murder. A good,
4: uh, high stakes for what does me high stakes mean? i mean yeah mur- murder is is yeah. right up there but i i my books tend to deal with some like something that's going to impact the whole world uh like disrupt the world's economy or you know there's going to be or maybe it's a virus or something so the, like that the ticking clock the ticking clock is a the ticking clock. Yeah. yeah constant in my stuff yeah. for sure
5: yeah see i think people overlook what they could use you know murder is like kind of the most logical but think about a good kidnapping yeah you know remember there was like a dirty harry where then there's been other stories where there's a kidnapping and this person only has so much oxygen you know they bury him in a coffin and there's only so much oxygen so they have to like solve whatever they have to solve in x amount of time or the their loved one suffocates you know that's that's high stakes
2: I think what you said there is important because death is high stakes. But then, um, you know, se- several other people smarter than I have talked about uh, the fate worth- yeah. worse than death or damnation. So, yeah, if you're mm-hmm. someone like your child is going to die or yep. a building is going to explode yeah. and kill lots of people, or, but, you know, it can be more internal too, right? Like, what is the fate worse than death for your character? But you, that's a good way yeah, to you, the it. thing
4: is though, mm-hmm. like those stakes, it's it all depends on the context, too, right? Because, uh, think about movies like you know, Legally Blonde or something like the the high stakes in that movie were not <laughs> murder or you know, death or anything like that. It was more like I don't even remember the movie really, but it was like finishing law school and things like that, right? So, uh, American Pie, same sort of things like just getting laid. That's the high stakes. Am I going to be a nerd for?
2: Well, I think it's important to to know that, like, not all stories are high stakes, right? Like, what mm-hmm. was that big one that came out in the last couple of years, Legends and Lattes? Yeah. It was like high fantasy with low stakes. So there are lots of great low stakes uh, okay, stories, yeah. too. So,
4: low stakes, yeah. okay. I mean, I, I, I guess I always think, I was thinking of it as in terms of like a, of a sliding scale, like the high stakes, they're still high. Like, when you're a teenager, everything's high stakes. Like, you know, is someone going to ask me to the prom, am I going to have a, you know, uh, am I going to get a car? Are these zits going to be here forever? Those are all high stakes to you when you're like 13, 14 years old. So, uh, But I think your way is probably better. Those are, those are low stakes stories. <laughs> uh, semantics.
2: semantics, right? Same, same thing. The high stakes of this podcast words. are,
4: yeah. is anyone going to agree with me over what high stakes mean? No, I thought anyone could be
2: naked in your book. I thought that <laughs> like, was surprised. That was a pretty,
4: that JP eating KFC uh, in the toilet while thinking about his plots.
3: <laughs> I am I just vegan, want a, so no. I just want to get a steak. At, at this Imp- point, like
4: I keep saying the word steak. <laughs> I'm now a little hungry. hungry now. <laughs> impossible chicken, JP. You can eat, eat the impossible chicken. <gasps> Perfect. Thank you. Great.
2: Okay. I had one last thing I thought was interesting. I thought it was interesting that uh, he did American tabloid as a 21 hour podcast, 21 and a half hours. What do you think about doing that? Writers turning their works into a podcast yeah. versus say just your regular audiobook. What's the
6: advantage? party on? Why not? Hype. Honestly, it's hype um, getting people yeah. to come back every week. Um, there's something to that, especially if, yep. You are either creating it or you're in the process of creating it, and kind of that, mo- yeah. that motivation to continue. Um, there are a lot of really good podcasts like that, and then they get compiled into audiobooks yeah. for people later. I think it's just a way to use media in
4: multiple forms.: Absolutely. I have a minor regret about I'm doing some paid a paid sub stack with, with a weekly chapter for this novella, uh, and I, my minor regret is that I didn't do an audio version of it while I was doing it, uh, because I think that would have been, cause I could have either read it. They're, they're short chapters, you know, they're usually like a thousand words or so. Uh, but I could have easily read that or done it with, uh, 11 labs or something and just released it at the same time. I think it would have been a bigger draw for it. And then I'd do the audiobook and ebook at the same time when I was done.
3: It's a good proving ground too, right? Like you could, um, use that as a testing ground to kind of fine tune yeah. the, the story. Like what it, take yes. all your
4: feedback and go back and
3: tweak it again and then, then put out your final yeah. product.
4: Yeah. Because I do play audio. Like I have the I have Word has a, a text to speech thing that I use on the iPad mm-hmm. that reads it for me and help them. then I use that for the editing. Mm-hmm. And so Same. you know I could just as yep. easily have dumped that into eleven labs and then it had a final product when I was done. So, so should have done it.
2: It's kind of like serial fiction, right? So you've got the hype of getting things early plus the option to adjust for like an audiobook. Oh, that's yeah, awesome.
4: Yeah. yeah, I love that idea.
2: Yeah. All right. And with that, JD, who is up next week?
3: Next week, we've got Wendy Whitman through her decades long work as an executive producer and on air reporter for Court TV and the Nancy Grace show. Wendy Whitman has become an expert on the subject of murder. Uh, she's going to explain how she's basically channeled this, that, that experience into her latest novel, which is called Retribution. And I believe the book is out now.
2: Sounds Great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.